Father, thank you for your Messiah, our Lord Jesus, that has come and rescued us, that has declared to us that the war is over between us and you. He comes with terms of peace and reconciliation. So tonight, Father, as we hear from you, help us by your Spirit. It has to be by your Spirit. We can't do it. It has to be by your Spirit. Uh, Apply this word to us. Renew our lives so that we would not fall into the trap of lazily watching our days go by, but that we would join you in your rescue mission to the world. We ask this in the name of Jesus, Messiah. Amen. Well, welcome uh, again. My name's Eric. I'm the pastor here, and it is good to be with you here tonight. Uh, We're in the middle of a sermon series in the book of Proverbs, and so if you've been coming to the church for a little while, then you know that. I think we're in part four tonight, and we're actually covering one of my favorite words in the entire Bible, just because it's a word that, you know, sometimes there's like, there's words that sound exactly like what they describe, and this is one of those words. Tonight we're talking about the sluggard. And I mean, literally, you could not get a better word to describe somebody who's lazy, the sluggard. And so, uh, and uh, there's a number of verses in the Proverbs that deal with this word, that describe this person. But uh, we're going to read just a short passage from Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 11. It reads like this. uh, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. End of reading. Ever since uh, I was a kid, uh, one of the values that was consistently drummed into my head was that hard work mattered. I can remember my grandfather being described by friends of his and others as a hard-working man and feeling like proud of that. Same thing about my father. My father was described the same way and feeling like, yeah, that must, that's what you do, hard work Matters, And when I finally was described as a hard worker by my own father, I felt like, like, I'm doing it. I am doing the thing that you're supposed to do. And so in my family growing up, the impression was given that basically it didn't matter what you did, as long as whatever you did, you worked hard at it. That was sort of the idea that at least I got. You know, it was much later in life that I learned that there was a saying, work smarter, not harder. Uh, because there's a lot of truth to that too. You can work really hard and not do it very smartly. Um, but, but that hard work value, I mean, that is, is there, I don't know if there's more of a value than that in this city. I mean, New York City is all about hard work and climbing the ladder and getting to the top and doing anything you have to do. It's not uncommon for New Yorkers to work 12 hours a day, five, six days a week to eat their lunches and their dinners at the office, to have more than one cell phone so that they can answer their other cell phone in the middle of the night when clients call or whatever. I mean, it is, this city is all about work. It's all about hard work. And to be honest... 
I think part of the reason that is is because it's easy to make hard work part of our validation, like it was for me growing up. We feel like we're doing what we should be doing. But I have to also tell you that I wasn't always, um, even though I knew it was a value, I had plenty of lazy days. When I was a teenager, uh, I think I was about the most lazy, slothful guy you'd ever want to meet in your life. I had no ambition, no drive, no goals to speak of. Really, I didn't have any clue what I wanted to do when I grew up. I mean, I, I still... Uh, I'm not sure if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do when I grew up. But uh, the Proverbs would have definitely referred to me by, at that time by the title slugger. No doubt about it. Uh, and the saying found in Proverbs 26.14 was most certainly true of me. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. That, by the way, isn't that just a beautiful picture? As a door turns on its hinges, the sluggard is like... Just like... You know, like it's such a beautiful picture. Uh, and so tonight we're going to talk about the characteristics of the sluggard uh, from this book, why someone might be a sluggard, the results of being a sluggard, and the cure for sluggardliness. That's where we're going. So first of all, what do the Proverbs say are the characteristics of the sluggard? Well, throughout the Proverbs, the word is mentioned 14 times, and in those 14 times there are a number of attributes given. Uh, first, according to chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, it's pretty clear from the passage we read, this is the kind of person that lacks any initiative and drive. Just doesn't, doesn't really have this kind of get up and go mentality. If you go one verse later, verse 8 of chapter 6, it appears this is also a person that has no planning skills, doesn't plan ahead very well, uh, basically spends everything he receives in the moment on whatever he wants, doesn't save. So the author of the Proverbs says, look at the ant. The ant's always shaving up and then you know, for a rainy day type thing. But the sluggard is somebody that seems to be impulsive, just spends whatever he gets. Uh, 10.26, chapter, Proverbs 10.26 and 19.24 portray the sluggard as someone who doesn't get the job done, who's not dependable. It says, quote, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. So it's super irritating. You send somebody out to do something for you and they never get the job done. And that's just really frustrating. It says again, this is a wonderful little verse here. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. It's like, oh, oh, oh it's too much work. It's too much work to bring it back to my mouth. Um, I can't help but, when I think of that picture, by the way, I can't help but think of the movie Wally, the Pixar movie. You know, you see what happens to humanity eventually. They're just laying around all day and... They don't move. Everything's just delivered to, like, their gullet, you know. Um, chapter 13, 14, 13, 4 describes this person as full of cravings, but never being satisfied. Chapter 21, 25 shows the sluggard as someone who just refuses to work, always looking for a shortcut. He's a procrastinator, the sluggard. 22, 13 shows him to be an excuse maker. Saying, quote, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. That's literally what the sluggard is pictured as saying. It's like, oh, in other words, let me translate. If I go out and look for a job today, who knows? I might be hit by a truck. I can't. I, I can't risk that. Proverbs 26, 16 shows the sluggard as someone unwilling to learn. He thinks he's wiser than everybody else. He's unwilling to hear correction or discipline or rebuke, and the reason being is because always the sluggard wants to sleep a little while longer all the time. 
So that's the picture created. Not a very pretty picture. And yet, as I was studying this week and reading these passages, if I'm honest with you, there is still a part of me that relates to all that. I can, I can be this guy on any given day. I could totally find myself being the sluggard that rolls over in his bed as the door turns on its hinges. I can totally be the procrastinator and not get the job done that I said I would get done. If I'm honest with you, I mean, there are times where I'm like, yeah, you know, it's just too much work to go outside and do anything. I mean, as much as I want to laugh at this guy and be like, ridiculous guy, this sluggard character, reality is it's in there. It's in there. Now, most of the time, if you're like me, you probably suppress it and you probably, nope, you're going down, get away, I'm not listening to you, sluggard. But it's there. It's there. What are the results of the slugger? Well, the picture created by the Proverbs is that the lazy person ends up most of the time being impoverished and causing disappointment among others. Poverty, of course, because they are unwilling to work hard and disappointment um, because, well, you know, constantly they're letting people down by not concluding or finishing the job. And worse than that, the Apostle Paul said in our text earlier, if you wanted to read along, you could go back to the first couple pages here from a passage in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, it's actually page 4. You can read it. I'm not going to read all of it right now. But he says basically what happens is people actually, by their laziness, can break up the fellowship. It can actually uh, be really discouraging to people. He says again, I'll just read this real, real quick. He says, you know, I, I hear some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now why would that be? Why would it cause dissension? Because everybody gets tired eventually of carrying the lazy person's weight. The sluggard's weight. Um... I don't know if any of you remember doing like high school projects where you get, you know, broken up into a group of four or five people. I always hated those. Well, actually, I should say, sometimes I liked them and sometimes I hated them. I liked them when I was the sluggard and I was put on a team of hardworking people. Because what happens? The hardworking people always carry the lazy guy. And then they go up to present together and they're like, hey, just say this line, all right? Just pretend like you did, did a thing. And they all get the same credit. It's, it's, it's so not just at all, you know. And yet at the same time, I can remember also being the hardworking guy and getting like, really tired of the person not willing to do the work. So it can cause division. That said, I do want to give a few caveats here about what Paul means. And, and you know, uh, first of all, this doesn't refer to merely someone who is unemployed trying to find work, that's not the situation here. You know, somebody that's trying but can't, that's completely understandable. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, second, this doesn't refer to people with uh, diagnosable conditions that might prevent them from work, whether psychological or physical. I mean, so, so like, this is referring to people that are quite capable of working, can learn, and just refuse to. That's what we're talking about here. 
So why would someone be prone to sluggardliness if we know that it's an irritant and it bothers people and it really gets in the way? Well, it could be, first and foremost, I mean, it could just be like straight up rebellion. Right? I mean, it could just be like, no, I'm just not going to do anything. I don't care. I just, no. I'm going to lay down and I'm going to go to bed. But if we've learned anything in life about sin and about, our, and about the things that we do that are harmful to ourselves and to others, here's the reality. It almost always goes deeper than just like, I don't want to. There's a deeper reason. So for example, like with, uh, you know, if someone loses their temper all the time or they, they get into a fit of rage, it's not merely that they just decided to get angry, but usually we know, I mean, we, psychologists tell us it's because this person is probably feeling insecure at that moment and that that's leading to them feeling upset. In an article for Business Insider, but it was in Time Magazine and Newsweek, a bunch of other periodicals about why we procrastinate, they lift off, list off seven reasons that psychologists have found for why we typically don't do the work we're supposed to do. I'll list them for you right now real quickly. Number one, if your dad was really, really strict as a kid, psychologists have found that you might be prone to procrastinating as a passive-aggressive way of getting back up. It's an interesting, interesting thing, but I can totally see it. Second reason, you're afraid to succeed. And the reason why that might be the case is because it might mean that people will actually ask you to do harder things in the future, and you're like, no, I don't want, I don't want them to ask me to do more. If I do good, then that means they're going to want me to do more. On the flip end of that, and I think this is probably the most common reason, number three, people are afraid to fail. I have good friends that procrastinated. I mean, some of the worst procrastinators in the world. They just, I mean, it was constant. But I can assure you, it was never, ever because they were lazy or because they were rebelling. But in fact, it was because they would become overwhelmed at the thought of not doing a perfect job at the thing they were asked to do. And that would paralyze them and they would have to find something else to do to distract them from it. Number four, related, you don't want to acknowledge your shortcomings. Uh, this is, I'm sure, the reason why I never actually fix stuff on my car because I don't want the world to know how bad I am at it. It's not that I'm lazy. It's just like, I should probably know how to do these things and I don't and I'm embarrassed. Now you all know. I'm terrible at fixing stuff in my car. My wife's home right now going, mm-hmm, yes, he is. Uh, number five, you need to adjust your perception of time. You ever have that happen to you? Or like, oh yeah, it's due, you, know, you have a project due, it's due in three months. And you're like, oh, three months, so far away. So far away, I can just forget about it, and la-di-da. And then three days before the project's due, just like, oh, and you completely forgot. And now you're staying up all night trying to get, get the thing done. You have an all-or-nothing mindset, that's number six. So it's got to be, I mean, there's no in-between. There's no ability to turn in a half, like a good enough. There's no, no ability to do that. And number seven, you don't practice self-compassion. Or in other words, you have a negative attitude about yourself and you have a hard time accepting that. 
You have a hard time letting yourself be that. See, again, it might be natural for us to think solely in terms of obedience and disobedience when it comes to somebody being lazy. And so we might go up to somebody and say, hey, you know, just stop laying around. Stop being lazy. And we might, I mean, we might think that that will do the trick. Hey, you need to get up and you need to go. But the fact is, that, that might not be what's needed. So what's the cure for the sluggard? Well, this is my final point, and, and I think in our culture the answer to that question depends on who you talk to. Depends on which side of the aisle you talk to oftentimes. So one approach to dealing with what is perceived as sloth or laziness is to sort of shame the person, like I mentioned. So benefits taken away, incentives are, get, uh, are given if one works harder. It's very much a cost-benefit type of scenario. It's very cut and dry. It's a merit-based system, pure and simple. And then on the other side, there tends to be an emphasis on a person's basic dignity. And so out of compassion, the, the, the impetus is to sort of provide at least the basic means of survival for a person even if they refuse to work hard. And so you've got those two counter arguments always going back and forth in our culture, in our politics, you name it. And I would argue that both opinions actually have strengths, but are just incomplete. The first option, indeed, may compel people to get out of the bed. But is it, it doesn't really get to deal with the heart that was just mentioned. All the other reasons that are deep down in there. And the mental issues behind this lawfulness. And the second option understands more that it is a heart issue, but doesn't give enough motivation to change. And so I'm going to argue to you that this is where... The gospel comes in. This is where Christianity comes in. Christianity says on the one hand, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf, that you are fully accepted, fully loved, and fully approved of no matter what you do or do not do. It has nothing to do with your works. You're fully accepted based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That God's judgment of you will never be based on your performance, but his. Indeed, the call of Jesus is for all those who are weary and burdened to come to him and find rest. But then, when we do that, when we find our identity anchored in Jesus and what he says about us, when we see that our ultimate approval needs to be found in him first and foremost, that no matter what we do, he'll never stop approving of us, then something interesting happens. Instead of lazing around doing nothing, you start getting busy. You start getting busy for your neighbor. Because the Christian doesn't have to work hard in order to validate themselves or to try and convince others that they're a hard enough worker. Rather, the Christian works from a place of total affirmation. And since this is the case, Christianity says, since the fear of failure and its consequences are taken away, you are free, listen carefully, because the fear of failure and its consequences are taken away, since all of your affirmation is found in Jesus, you're free now to work really, really, really hard. You're free to try to do hard things. You're free to try and take incredible risks 
You're free to even do dangerous things for the sake of others. You're free to fail. Because that's not what defines who you are. Jesus is who defines who you are. And the more you know that, the more you're recklessly able to go out and serve others with your skills and your talents. And you're able to, to, to learn more without, it's not, it, so it just is a mindset. Paul Zoll says it this way. He says, quote, my doing of the good deeds Jesus taught actually hinged on him saving me. I who had found myself paralyzed and blocked from doing those good deeds. When I felt myself loved in my chains, in my paralysis, that feeling of being loved seemed to trigger the very motivation and strength that had failed me before. Being treated forgivingly in my faults and fears freed me up. There was an empowering connection between Jesus saving me and the fuel to do what he said I should do. So, so the motivation, what we're arguing here is that your motivation has to be anchored first and foremost in knowing that no matter how you might blow it in whatever endeavor you go after, that your affirmation is in Jesus. And because of that, you're going to be fine. I mean, you know, my favorite example of the ultimate failure, you can look it up on uh, on the Google machine um, is Abraham Lincoln. And it is actually real. It's not like something that the internet made up. But if you look at, at Abraham Lincoln's life, I won't list off all of his failures, but the man's life is filled to the brim with failure after failure after failure after failure. He runs for political office, loses time and time and time and time and time and time again. He just doesn't give up. There's, there's freedom. There's freedom to work hard when you're anchored in what God says about you and his affirmation. Or if you've ever seen or heard the musical uh, Les Miserables, if you think about it, it's only after the chief character, Jean Valjean, receives absolute grace and mercy and peace, completely, completely unearned through the hands of a bishop that he is truly able to to change and truly able to serve others with abandon, which in the final analysis is what obedience to Jesus actually is. It's just serving others. So let me close with my, one of my favorite quotes. I mean, the hardest working people I know, I gotta, I'm just telling you this from my experience of being a pastor for 10 plus years the single hardest working people I know in my life are indeed the people that work from a place of knowing that they are absolutely approved of by God. The people that I know that are freed up in his grace are the hardest working people I know. They're the missionaries that risk life and limb to go overseas to serve people because they know that no matter what they do, that's not what is going to determine their worth. Worth is determined by what God says about them. And what God says about them because of Jesus is that they're fully accepted, fully loved, fully forgiven, and that won't change. So now they're free to go risk their life to serve the world. C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. 
It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And then my favorite line, aim at heaven, what Jesus says about you, aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you get neither. Let's pray. Father, thank you that ultimately our work, or lack thereof, is not what determines our standing with you, but it's Jesus' work on our behalf that does that. And because of that, now we're, we're free. We're free to go serve our neighbor with reckless abandon and to, to take care of our families and be responsible and to do things that are hard because we don't have to worry about failure. We will fail. We do. Every day in small ways and in large ways. But we can get back up again because we know that in Christ we have all we need. Thank you for this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.